Good evening once again everyone. Selves and not selves and everything in between. I want to spend uh, the beginning of this talk reflecting a little bit in a dharmic way on the energies that seem to be moving the world. And uh, that may be a bit of a downer, but know that we're going to turn this around as, as, as I move forward. Don't lose hope. Um, and a cartoon from the New Yorker. <clears throat> you can't see it, most of you can't see it, but there's a couple all cozied up on the couch here and they got their big screen TV. And it says, this week on the amazing race to enlightenment, can Jim and Susie achieve right mindfulness? And will Barb and Candy be eliminated for relentless clinging to the self? We laugh, but soon, with the popularity of mindfulness and all of this, we're going to see stuff like this. <laughs> Hopefully not filmed here. But. So we've talked a little bit this week about this uh, sense of, or construct of, the solidification of the self. And we've explored a little bit the sense of separation uh, that comes with this construct and the suffering that that invokes. So with a mental construction like, I'm a separate individual, when that's firmly embedded, there's a sense of competition with others, naturally flows out of that. There's a sense of needing to defend this solid, separate, embattled self, protected in some way. Um, and it's not a great leap to see how that uh, the construct or constructs and tendencies uh, uh, like that, that we witness playing out in ourselves, how that plays out collectively in our culture. And so, This word, collectively. I mean, I identify with various collectives. I think we all do. I'm a white guy. I'm uh, not a person of color. I mostly identify as an Irish American, not an Italian American, a heterosexual, not a homosexual. I mean, there's lots, and just think about all the collectives that you could belong to. I'm this, not so much that. This, not so much that. I mean, we could, each of us could have a long list. And there's a history of patriarchal identification. Historically, men banded together, created institutions, and wrote the laws that defined men somehow as superior. In lots of cultures this happened. And over time, laws were written that gave men the right to control women, their bodies, and it became a man's right. Racism is similar. One group forms a separate identity develops a certain level of fear and animosity towards another or hatred, and then exploits and oppresses them because of skin color. The same with nationalism. A collective identity coalesces power. I mean, we can look at this in various, from various vantage points. It coalesces power, then singles out another group for exploitation. You can do it in ethnicity, religion, gender, class, 
sexual orientation, disability. Sadly, it's a long list. But whatever example you pick, examples of any one group exploiting and harming another, when you deconstruct what's happening, the cause is always the same. It's the creation of other. The offshoot of creating a separate self. And over and over you see it in the news. One group declaring another group the other, working up a demonization of that group, lessening their human value in some way, and then doing with them whatever they choose. This, is, of course, is the etymology of genocide, slavery, ethnic cleansing, torture, all the forms of exploitation and discrimination. And unfortunately, it's a major thread in human history. It's not the only thread, but it's a terribly significant one. So we're here in the United States of America. And I want to spend just a couple of minutes looking at some of the cultural institutions that we have here. And they're very similar to other places in the world, of course. Take the uh, for-profit corporation. And over the years, I've been an owner of many corporations and have interests in some right now. My life prior to teaching Dharma for the last 15 years exclusively was in various businesses. So corporations are now ruled a person by the courts and certainly a very impersonal person. Uh, maybe not the kind of person you'd like as a neighbor. <laughs> you know? But the corporation has a, a strong collective identity. There's a, a really strong in-group feeling. And the CEO of a corporation has a legal fiduciary responsibility to the stockholders to make a profit and can be held accountable if he chooses other things or she chooses other things above profit. If the CEO decides to choose social responsibility over profit, they're in danger of losing their position, depending on the mood of the stockholders. And certainly all those working under the CEO, everybody in the corporation, they may have great concern for the environment or the, or the effect of that corporation in the, computer, in the community in which it's embedded. But if those motivations, those personal motivations, happen to interfere with the goals and profits of the corporation, their job would be at risk. So corporations are designed to preserve themselves, increase their own power, and perpetuate themselves um, forever. And that's quite apart from the motivations of the, of the good people who work in them, in many cases. Uh, John Ralston Saul, in a piece about the ethics of modern organizations, he says this. And he's talking about, he's defining amorality. Okay? Amorality is a quality admired and rewarded in modern organizations when it is referred to through the metaphors such as professionalism and efficiency. Immorality is doing wrong of our own volition. We know it is unethical, but we go ahead and do it anyway. Amorality is doing it because an organization or a structure expects us to do it. Amor amorality is therefore worse than immorality because it involves denying our responsibility and therefore denies our existence as anything more than a cog in a machine or a being without the capacity to think. So if you think back to the end of World War II, the Nuremberg uh, war trials and the most recent war crimes trials in The Hague, uh, 
the defense almost always has the plea or gives the plea, look, my person was only following orders. And the same went for people involved in some of the corporations during the financial crisis, although not many were prosecuted. Um, It was the culture. It was expected of me. It's how we did things. There was that disconnect. There was no responsibility. And so the Buddha talked often about the three poisons, and we've mentioned them here. Greed, ill will, and delusion. Also known as the three unwholesome motivations. And the Buddha said when these three poisons, or when we're motivated by these three poisons, uh, we're going to create problems for ourselves and everybody around us. Which is why a foundational part of this spiritual path is to cultivate the opposite of these qualities. Instead of greed, cultivating the motivation for generosity. Instead of ill will, cultivating love and kindness. Instead of delusion, cultivating wisdom. Especially the wisdom that's aware of our interdependence. Now, it logically follows that. Because greed, ill will, and delusion haven't been skillfully related to and worked through in the individuals, on the individual level, that those unskillful motivations, tendencies, energies manifest directly in the systems and institutions that we create. The individual units, us, we create these systems and institutions. It's cause and effect. It actually can't be avoided. And so you can make a case that the main institutions of our particular culture here and many around the globe Uh, manifest their fair share of these three poisons by virtue of the fact that they are designed and worked up legally by us who are still kind of working through our own greed, our own ill will, and our own delusions. And a case could be made that we have institutionalized greed That's our economic system. A case could be made that we've institutionalized ill will, which manifests as militarism, which manifests as racism, which manifests as our extremely punitive attitude towards those who break the law, which manifests as our attitude towards undocumented immigration, and manifest as our attitude toward those of certain sexual orientations. And a case could be made that we've institutionalized delusion, which involves large portions of the media and the educational system. I think you could make a case that the media is mostly unquestioning of some of the major questions pertaining to our survival as a species. For example, and we could could have a list of questions that maybe ought to be addressed regularly in great depth and aren't, but for example, is it really possible to have economic systems totally predicated on exponential expansion. Where in nature does this work? Where in nature does the exponential use of resources end up well? The belief that economies must expand exponentially forever 
It just flies in the face of common sense. And you might say, well, that's delusional. There's not a lot of questioning about that. And sadly, the education system doesn't do much critical questioning either. It's pretty much involved with just giving us the skills so we can fit in somewhere and keep this all going. So there's an urgency. And so not only is it important for us to address uh, continually and in depth our own personal greed, ill will, and delusion, but to consider also how to work with these institutional forms of greed, ill will, and delusion. If we want to be a um, informed, participating citizen. So this week, you've been practicing the antidote to these three poisons. And an antidote to a world functioning like this. And what I want you to remember, front and center, and it's the big part of our practice, that nothing is permanent. Not even the seemingly powerful and self-perpetuating systems, institutions, prejudices, and poisons that I just outlined. They're not permanent. Impermanence is our friend. You know, a couple of years ago, I was uh, in Israel, visiting Israel, and uh, it was the summer, it was really hot, and uh, I was at Megiddo. Megiddo in, the, I guess, the Old Testament or somewhere, is supposed to be where the world ends or whatever, but now it's an archaeological site. Used to be kind of a crossroads of great commerce for Thousands of years, really, quite a place. But now, not too many people live around there. And there's some farms and stuff. But uh, So there were these teams of archaeologists working the site. Temperature was probably about 110 that day. And I'm out there, and they're working under shade. You know, they set up. And uh, they're working real slow because of the heat and invited me to sit down. So chatting them up, asking them what they're finding, etc. And... They had, I guess, they'd probably been working that site for over a hundred years, different teams from different parts of the world. They, at that point, had uncovered something like 19 different civilizations on top of one another. So I'm sitting there and I'm looking at all their digging and I'm thinking, each one of them probably thought, hey, we got it together. We're going to be around. We got the walls, we got the defense, we got the water, we got whatever, you know, and uh, impermanence, you know. So you all have at your personal disposal, and we have collectively at our disposal, the transformational power of bodhicitta. Now we're getting to the good part. Bodhicitta, bodhi means awakened. Chitta we talked about before is meaning uh, sometimes translated as heart-mind, also translated as thought or intention or spirit. So bodhicitta, the spirit of awakening, the attitude of awakening. It's, It's a vision or experience that when you are saturated with it, it makes you want to live your life in a different way. And I know that's happening to some or many of you because I hear it from you in our meetings. A desire to be a benefit for others. That's bodhicitta. It's an altruistic energy. It's, It's an energy and path of love and care for others. Now, sometimes bodhicitta is talked about as relative and absolute bodhicitta. On the relative level, bodhicitta basically means compassion. 
on the absolute level, bodhicitta means the empty nature of the mind itself. And one of Buddhism's most interesting and salient features is this interaction or this connection between dukkha and anatta. That relationship between unsatisfactoriness and suffering and selflessness, emptiness, is very interesting. And at first it may not seem that there's a connection there. And another way to frame selflessness, or anatta, is that it's the claim that the claim of not-self is the claim of not-separation. Okay, this, can everybody see the cloud in this piece of paper? See it? No? Yes? Come on. Well, where does the paper come from, right? Trees. What do trees need? A little soil, some sun, some moisture. Where does moisture come from? It comes from a cloud, like today. And here comes the rain. So, if there's no cloud, there's no piece of paper. It just doesn't happen. So you can see the cloud in the piece of paper. Now, you can. In a way, it's implied that there's an interbeing with the paper and the cloud. It wouldn't be possible without the cloud. And not only the cloud, but all kinds of other things. You know, we mentioned the sun, the soil, etc. but the lumber person who cut the tree down. And if you think about that person, whoever they are, who cared for them, who made the clothes for them, who educated them, and the equipment they used, who designed it, and the oil and the gas to run the chainsaw, or whatever they used to bring the tree down and make the paper. And once you, once you start reflecting on what an incredible set of causes and conditions are necessary in order to make even something like a piece of paper or the lunch you had today, you start to see how everything is interdependent. Things can't be separated out. And certainly, it's true for a piece of paper, it's true for you. You know, think of the incredible webs of causes and conditions that have made it possible for you to be right here now. You can think one line back, your parents, grandparents, all the way back, you know, in in the the tree of Homo sapiens. There's a really cool exhibit now, uh, I think it's called Human Origins at the Natural History Museum in Washington. I I like to go to Washington occasionally. It's about a three hour drive from Charlottesville and go to the museum. So it was a fascinating uh, exhibit. It's only been there a couple of years. And it basically shows the whole, the whole human tree of which there were many branches and they also have some forensically accurate models of what these different uh, branches of the tree looks like Neanderthals and Australopithecus and all these other people. Well, there was like a score of all these uh, different humanoids, but only one exists now, Homo sapiens. There's just one. It's us. It's like there's only one tribe left. You know, and yeah, we look different on the outside, but you get us under a microscope and genealogically, Boy, we're like almost, almost identical to each other. That's all that's left. And I found that kind of fascinating, you know, thinking about all these other dead ends, and here we are, and that everybody I'm looking at is kind of me, you know? So, um, and if you trace it back even further, if you keep going back, from that tree that was established, of which we are the remaining branch, you get back to the creation of a cell, which, re- which required, you know, for that cell wall to finally close up, 
you know, required some elements to come into play together. Calcium, nitrogen, you know, carbon, I guess, oxygen. And in order to have those elements, you had to have uh, a kind of fusion that went on in supernovas that we now study in stars, kind of spread this stuff around. And in order to have the stuff to create the fusion, you know, we had the Big Bang. So this incredible web of causes and conditions, it's just, it's just so far beyond that night when your mom and dad got frisky together. It's just so far beyond that. You know? And what I'm trying to get at is that each and every one of you is a manifest, manifestation of all the causes and conditions of the cosmos. Don't get all inflated about that, but it's true. <laughs> Each of you is this amazing example how it all comes together right now, right here. Yeah. You are stardust, everybody. And everything here is stardust. Have you heard of Indra's net? You know, it's a kind of mythological configuration. Uh, Indra was an Indian god. And Indra's net is the web of creation. It's a three-dimensional web that includes everything. And at each cross of this net is a infinitely faceted jewel. And each of the facets reflect all the other nodes are the, all the other jewels in this fabulous net. They all, everything is reflecting everything else. So in terms of this cosmos, with all, all that is reflecting everything else, everything being the cause of everything else, of, and everything being the effect of everything else, there's nothing outside the net. And Indra would probably say, well, there's not even a God outside it, part of the net, if there is gods, you know, if they exist. And the difference between samsara and nirvana, or heaven and hell, or delusion and enlightenment, is whether those nodes, each of you, has a sense of separation, feeling a separate node, or whether there's a felt sense of inclusion in all of this. And so this incredible interdependence you might want to think that you're a separate, solid entity, but it's just so not true. But this interdependence points to emptiness. Not some kind of depressing, washed out, gray, vacuum, dull emptiness, but empty of a separate, independent self. This from the uh, Tibetan teacher, Shabkar. The heart-mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. Let's do a little reflection. So. Close your eyes and kind of come into a posture that I'm sure you're used to. And I'm going to read that again and just reflect on it, feel into it, and then we'll do a little short meditation together, which I will guide you in. So take a few deep breaths. Hold it for a second, let it out slowly, settle in.
The heart-mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. And so now just noticing the play of life, the external phenomena, sounds, maybe you can feel the air on your skin, the internal phenomena, sensations, emotions, thoughts, all arising and passing and all known automatically by awareness. Now, turn your attention and look directly at the nature of awareness. Awareness is empty vast, transparent, unstained, vivid. Awareness is the knowing presence of the play of all phenomena, but is not made of them. It is the knowing presence of the play of all phenomena, but is not made of them. Look directly at the nature of awareness. Intrinsically empty, radiant, illuminated. Look directly at the nature of awareness. Empty of self. Yet ceaselessly responsive to all situations. Awake and responsive, knowing, look directly at the nature of awareness. In reflection, there was a pointing toward the absence of self-centeredness. Just awareness, knowing the arising and passing of phenomena. 
you could say nature knowing itself, creation knowing itself. And maybe you've had a few moments of experience like that during this retreat. Maybe not. But that reflection's just just a pointing. So are you the node of Indra's net, that activity known as you, whatever name you have, that node, that jewel? Are you the node that realizes the interdependence, the connection with all of creation? And you know, over and over, you fall into self-centeredness. It's part of our, part of our nervous system, our survival orientation, the brainstem, limbic system, etc. It's okay. It's like, it's kind of like gravity when this self, self-central or self-centered reference point kind of starts pulling in on itself contracts around itself, activates, kind of gets into a tight circle. And when we're in one of those tight circles, we just kind of shut in. It's just, it's all about our worries, hopes, fears, plans, desires. That's all there is. Everything gets referenced from a very narrow space. It just happens. You lose perspective, mindfulness escapes, conditions change, and life seems to just revolve around getting that next desire satisfied. Whatever it might be, that grasping at that new thing, or that new groovy experience, or that new groovy person. And on the flip side, life could revolve around getting rid of that thing, that experience, or that not-so-groovy person. You know? So, with, with the kind of unstated belief that, gee, if I can get it all right, if I can line it all up, I'm just going to be happy and free forever. But the great beauty of this practice is that over and over it shows us the futility of that. You know, and that's beautiful, that's real, it's honest, it's true. And we're humans, and over and over when we're not paying attention, we get pulled into this really tight egocentric orbit. And we're trying to gratify it, defend it, protect it, fulfill it. But for some reason, some karma or all your past lives, you stumbled over this mindfulness stuff. And that through a patient and kind, careful attention, a patient and kind, careful investigation, you can penetrate into the most subtle areas of experience. And you're doing it here this week. And from that base, you'll start to get a glimpse, just a glimpse or a taste of the empty nature of self. You start to feel it viscerally, what the Buddha's most basic instruction was. We start to have that direct visceral experience. And that basic instruction was, nothing whatsoever shall be clung to as I or mine. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Nothing. So when you have that experience and that kind of confining power of the egocentric gravity lightens up a little bit, it can get very interesting. 
and some of you have been talking about it. In a couple of groups, we've talked about the continuum of the solidity of self on one end, absolute solidity, and then this something else on the other. The example I often use, and some of you have heard it in the group, is passing gas in church. When you do that, you will experience the full solidity of self. <laughs> the flood of blood and the embarrassment and the uh. Okay? That's one end of the continuum. The other end, you know, sometimes you may be sitting here and it's like, well, I know the boundary of my skin is right here, but somehow I'm not feeling that. There's a kind of a permeability starts to happen. And it, or a, you know, there are reports of kind of lightness of being. And, well, gee, I couldn't feel where my boundaries were. That sense of solid, separate self, like the one in church, um, it's kind of dissolving a little bit. It's becoming wispy at times. And then there are moments where it is poof. You know? So, it's very interesting, our experience. I want to read you a poem uh, by Rilke that kind of gets at this notion of a self that's dissolved. It's called Buddha in Glory. Center of all centers, core of cores, almond self-enclosed and growing sweet, all this universe to the furthest stars, all beyond them is your flesh, your fruit. Now you feel how nothing clings to you your vast shell reaches into endless space. And there the rich, thick fluids rise and flow, illuminated in your infinite peace. A billion stars go spinning through the night, blazing high above your head. But in you is the presence that will be when all the stars are dead. So as we practice, we begin to glimpse this radiance of mind, boundless, clear, unconstrained. Have you ever had the good fortune of being around somebody or a person or a teacher or somebody who's, who's empty in this way, kind of feels empty in this way? And sometimes in their presence, we can draft along, if I can use a Southern NASCAR term, you know? We can, we can feel it, we can sense it. A few years ago, um, Bhante Gunaratana came to stay at my house. The people at the monastery felt he was just working too hard. He was approaching 80 and he had some health problems. He was trying to write three books at once and see all these people. So they convinced him, oh, i go down to Charlottesville, hang out with this guy for a while. you know." So he came and uh, uh, he, delightful. He'd get up and he'd meditate three hours in the morning and then he'd set up his computer on a pillow and he'd be working on his books, various books. And he'd say, well, I, don't, I probably won't finish him before I die, but maybe somebody else will, you know. <laughs> and he liked going for, on long walks and we'd take the dogs and he loved nature and, loved, and we were just kind of doing life together like roommates. But after a couple days, I started to feel like I was like stoned. <laughs> And, and it dawned on me that I was kind of like falling into his orbit. It was, I mean, he really is a national or an international treasure. It's like in his, in his 80s, he's still alive. He became a monk in Sri Lanka when he was 11. 
worked in, I think it was in Calcutta with lepers and set up a program there, came to the U.S., got his Ph.D. in comparative religion, I think at American, and set things up in Washington, D.C., and now he's in um, West Virginia, little little monastery. But it, it dawned on me that I was living in this space in close proximity to him, and it was really affecting me, this kind of permeability and emptiness. It's quite, quite beautiful, very inspiring. Mother Teresa was once, once asked by an interviewer, uh, what do you say to God when you pray, Mother Teresa? And she said, I don't say anything, I just listen. And then the interviewer asked, well, what does God say to you? And she said, he doesn't say anything. He just listens. And if you don't understand, I can't explain it to you. So there she is, quiet, listening, listening to listening, resting in emptiness of self. Emptiness of mind, heart, open, awake. from the Buddha, and Matt, Matt read this last night, and it's worth, worthy of repeat. Actually, it's worthy of repeat every day. In what is seen, there should be just the seen. In what is heard, there should be just the heard. In what is sensed, there should be just the sensed. In what is thought, there should be just the thought. It's really just that simple. Awareness, knowing, activity. Just the knowing. Without a lot of overlaid constructs. Open and empty. From Rumi. Live in the nowhere that you come from even though you have an address here. Live in the nowhere that you come from even though that you have an address here. That's pointing to this rich, beautiful paradox of this practice. To come to know the nowhere that you come from, even as you have your feet on the ground, right here, right now, and in a few days in the midst of everything, all your activities, your relationships, your worldly joys, sorrows, gains, losses, responsibilities. But as you practice, there develops a backdrop, a wise perspective and understanding. You know, after you've had repeated tastes of this interdependence, a sense of this interbeing of creation, And as Jimi Hendrix used to say, when you're experienced, he was talking about different things. (laughs) But maybe not. He was a very interesting person. So when you're experienced, this intrinsic emptiness of self you'll notice that compassion arises spontaneously. It's the natural response to the wisdom heart-mind. A wisdom heart-mind that sees and feels viscerally the connection to all of this. No you, no me, no inside, no outside. Somebody asked in a a meeting, is compassion the same as empathy? Well, compassion is something more than empathy. Empathy is beautiful in itself. It's the feeling for another's difficulty. But compassion has movement in it. 
it is a verb. There's a motivation to do something in compassion, to reach out. What can I do to help? How can I relieve the suffering that I've discovered in myself or others? That movement of the heart is the relative bodhicitta. Uh, the Zen teacher Norman Fisher describes bodhicitta like this. We have all sorts of needs and we can pile them up. When self-concern is our major motivation, it requires a high level of cooperation from the world and it just doesn't work like that. When the light of bodhicitta goes off, the whole perspective changes, broadens. We see how much happier it is to be expansive and to be concerned for others. And when we look into the nature of self, we see that we are the other. Now with bodhicitta, under self-concern, when bad things happen, I'm sorry, under self-concern, when when bad things happen, there is a tight anguish. Now with bodhicitta, the picture widens out and we have a whole different set of concerns. And even when bodhicitta sees suffering in the world and takes it in, there is still room for joy. There is sorrow, but because of the expansive perspective, there is room for joy. It is not narrow. See, awareness can hold everything, joys, sorrows, at the same time. And with that kind of experience and and, an expansive understanding and wise view gained by direct experience, you can see how we can hold so much, how we can stand with more suffering, our own and others, and how burnout doesn't have to happen. It's a possibility. Think about the Dalai Lama. What, 50, 60 years in exile now? You know? Struggling almost completely unsuccessfully and uh, getting rights for his brethren back in Tibet. You'd think he might harden, get some rough edges over that period of time. But his capacity to keep his heart open in the face of such unrelenting adversity is now become legendary in the annals of humanity, really. And the Dalai Lama says this, Whenever I meet people, I always approach them from the standpoint of the most basic things we have in common. We each have a physical structure, a mind, emotions. We're all born in the same way and we all die. All of us want happiness and do not want to suffer. Looking at others from this standpoint rather than emphasizing secondary differences, such as the fact that I am a Tibetan or I or a different color, religion, or cultural background allows me to have a feeling that I'm meeting someone just the same as me. I find that relating to others on that level makes it much easier to exchange and communicate with each other. Now that's bodhicitta. What open-heartedness. And there's many high-profile Examples of bodhicitta that we've read about, heard about, been inspired about. Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks. But our lives are generally not played out on that stage, that great a stage. You know, there are more common experiences like, like this this little story. As the old man walked the beach at dawn, he noticed a youth ahead of him picking up starfish and flinging them into the sea. Finally catching up with the youth, he asked him why he was doing this. The answer was that the stranded starfish would would die if left in the morning sun. 
But the beach goes on for miles and there are millions of starfish, countered the old man. How can your effort make any difference? The young man looked at the starfish he had in his hand and then threw it to the safety of the waves. Makes a difference to this one, he said. So the expression of bodhicitta takes many ordinary and beautiful ways, sometimes surprising. Sometimes bodhicitta might be surprised it comes right out of someone who's very fearful, very wounded. Because that energy is inherent, it's there in all of us, no matter, no matter the extent of our wounds. It's often covered over, but there is this fountain of bodhicitta in all of us and everyone who walks this earth. And really, it's the hope for humanity. And I thought I'd tell a story about my father. Uh, he, son of an Irish immigrant, his father came over in 1888 and uh, married shortly thereafter. And, and there's some disagreement in the family. There's a group of family members who believe that my grandmother was a Mohawk. She came from New York. She looks like a Mohawk and it was kind of hidden. So he had possibly this Irish Mohawk union. Big Irish family. Uh, his father died when he was two. He was the youngest of 11 children. Four of the children died in childhood. So seven made it to adulthood. World War II comes along just recently married to my mother. He goes into the war just a couple months after being married. And uh, he's in the Fifth Army. They invade Africa. Then they move, they invade Italy. His unit still has a record uh, for uh, the American Armed Forces for being in combat almost 700 straight days. So a classic case of PTSD when he came back. And all my relatives would tell me I was born, you know, after the war. They'd say, oh, you should have known your dad before the war. He was just a, such a joker, such a funny guy, life of the party, you know. But that's not the person I knew, you know. My person was kind of jumpy and he had a, a really bad temper and he was impatient with me. And um, he was so wired that you had to be careful when you woke him up. Like my mother said, we go wake up your dad, you know, for dinner or something. He worked hard. He, he had a, like a fifth grade education. Both my parents never got through grammar school. Worked very hard. And they were always exhausted by the time they got home. So you'd have to go wake him up and you'd have to sneak up on him and just kind of touch him and jump back. Because whatever direction you touched him, he'd come out of it with a clenched fist in that direction. So my mother actually became really good at bobbing and weaving, especially in the bed at night, you know. So, um, so anyway, I was a teen, uh, this one story, and I got lots of stories, I was a teenager. And we lived in this little row house in New Jersey. It's about 900 square feet, two, two floors, very tight and very interesting neighborhood, just post-war kids and people all over the place, different ethnic groups. And um, next door to us, happened to be, uh, it was uh, an Italian family, and the, the, the boy in the family, older than me, or one of the boys in the family, older than me, about three or four years, he quit school when he was 16, and he was the president of the North Jersey Aliens motorcycle gang, which was a very powerful gang at that time in the 60s, and they had actually pushed out Hell's Angels out of northern New Jersey. They had also recently been arrested and there were some problems, they were busted, and they lost their clubhouse in Patterson, New Jersey. So the meetings were held in the street right next to our house. <laughs> we were at the end of the row house. And so there'd be all these motorcycles there. They'd show up and they'd be drinking beer and working on their motorcycles and getting a little rowdy and stuff like that. Beautiful motorcycles. Some of those old Indians they had them, and that was their prize, you know, and they were beautiful. And so I'm, we had this little screen porch, and I'm doing my homework. It's in the spring, it's warm, I'm on the porch. 
and uh, uh, see my father comes up, comes up. My mother worked the night shift. She wasn't there. She was at Westinghouse. She probably could have prevented this. But he looks outside and a couple of these guys are urinating on our property. And he goes off. And he's just a little guy. And I go, oh no. And he runs out there and takes a couple leaps. And he's right there in the midst of them. And he's reading them the riot act. So I get up and I'm like, I'm like frozen. I was playing baseball at the time, so there were, there were baseball bats there. I had a bunch of bats. So I took a bat and I kind of held it behind me and I'm looking out the door and I'm just like, do I want to die with this crazy guy or do I want to just stay here? You know, it's like I was scared to death. And so he, and they start moving towards him, around him. But I could still see him. He was littler than a lot of these guys. And finally, uh, Jack, my next door neighbor, known by the press as Jersey Jack, steps in, he was somewhere over on another motorcycle, and he, he steps in, he says, oh, we are so sorry, Mr. Coffee. You know, this will not happen again. And he turned to the guys in the gang and said, right? And they said, oh, oh yeah, Mr. Coffee, this won't happen again. And then Jack, actually, he was the leader because he was, he had a kind of a way with people until a certain point. And then... <laughs> <laughs> And, he, and then he kind of took my father. He said, well, come on, look at this. I want to show you some new stuff on my bike. So my father's over there looking. And I go, <laughs> So I go back, to my, go back to my homework. He comes back in the house. Doesn't say anything. Goes down the basement. I hear this all this banging and rattling around and all these metallic sounds. And then I notice he's lugging these two huge toolboxes up the stairs, goes out into the street. He's sharing all his tools with these guys helping him work on the carburetors, pulling stuff apart. He was out there for hours, drinking beer with them. You know, it was like, you know, but it was in there. He was a damaged man. No question about it. But beneath that, and I saw it over and over again, there was this, this beauty and this caring, this ability to step outside himself and offer help in ways that he could. And he knew some things about mechanics. He was a machinist. So we don't have to do anything special or be anything special to practice bodhicitta. We can exercise it with our family, the people we work with, the strangers we meet, people in the store. This from Sister Joan uh, Chittister. This is her special compassion practice. Try saying this silently to everyone and everything you see for 30 days. And it goes like this. I wish you happiness now and whatever will bring happiness to you in the future. If we set it to the sky, we would have to stop polluting. If we set it If we said it when we see ponds and lakes and streams, we would have to stop using them as garbage dumps and sewers. If we said it to small children, we would have to stop abusing them, even in the name of training. If we said it to people, we would have to stop stoking the fires of enmity around us. Beauty and human warmth would take root in us like a clear, hot June day. We would change. It is said that when both relative and absolute bodhicitta are present, that is compassion and emptiness, that enlightenment is unavoidable. So this practice of loving kindness and compassion, they're not some lofty ideal. We don't have to create it from scratch. We just have to find ways to navigate to that source of that upwelling. And of course, we know sometimes it's just covered over with fear and conditioning, our desires, whatnot. But that energy is inherent. All of us have it. And as we cultivate a little more and more this mindfulness, this compassion, that energy of bodhicitta is available when we need it. 
even when things are seem stacked against us, even when we feel a little lost and helpless, even when we're feeling that gravitational pull back into ourselves. It's always here. It's just a pause and a relaxation away. Just this next breath. So let's sit together for a minute. This is from Walt Whitman's Song of the Open Road. I inhale great drafts of space. The east and the west are mine, and the north and south are mine. I am larger, better than I thought. I did not know I held so much goodness. I am larger, better than I thought. I did not know I held so much goodness. Thank you again for your attention and there's some time for walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.